You're listening to Tech Nest, the PropTech Podcast. In each episode, you'll hear from PropTech founders, investors, and industry veterans on how they're using tech to change the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. Discover market opportunities, interesting data, growth tactics, and trends driving the industry forward. This isn't just another podcast about making money in real estate. This is about how we live. And now your host, Nate Smoyer. Hey, Sean. Welcome to the show. Hey, Nate. Happy to be here. You got a ton of books behind you. You got a favorite one right off the bat? Oh, there's a lot of good ones up there. It is hard to pick one favorite. They all have different different things to, to learn. So I don't know that I've got one that I can single out. I'm going to I'm gonna put myself out there and I'm probably going to alienate 99% of uh, listeners and maybe yourself. I, and I'm pretty sure I have it on the, on the shelf behind me. Good to great is my biggest pet peeve of books ever at this point because the premise of the book failed and yet it's still held up in high regard. I, I actually, I do generally agree with that. And I do have that one right up here. I saw so. it. That's why I said it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. We're starting off on the same foot here. Uh, I've got Sean Roberts on the show today. He's the CEO of a company called Villa. Uh, he joined the company back in January 23, so not that long ago. Villa's focused on, as they put it, being the easiest, fastest, and most cost-efficient in building new homes. Currently, the largest provider of prefab ADUs in California, a big topic we got to get into. And and Sean actually is no stranger to PropTech. Previously was uh, the COO and CFO at two different times at the company Orchard. And so I'm going to start with that. You already know the difficulties that the real estate industry offers for any sort of transformation. And that doesn't even matter if it's tech, but you know, add tech to it. It's a whole other layer of difficulty. Why in the world would you come back into what I refer to as the pain cave voluntarily a second time to to build a company as CEO? Yeah, it's a great question. Like to me, hard things are usually the things that are the most worth doing. And, um, you know, Orchard's a great business. And I spent the better part of five years working, building that from its Series A all the way through its Series D in a variety of different um roles and we got from when I joined 25 people to pretty close to a thousand people at our peak. So that was a phenomenal experience to understand what it's like to build and very rapidly scale a prop tech business. And I was excited to do it again. Um, and when I looked at what Orchard was doing in many ways, and it's a, it's solving a real problem by vertically integrating brokerage, mortgage, and title, which is really valuable and important to many consumers. But at the end of the day, to some degree, it's approaching what's kind of a solved problem for the consumer. Like you can get a broker, you can get a title policy, you can get a mortgage. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're going to be working with three different parties who are not very well coordinated. It's going to be expensive and frictionful, but you can do that as a consumer, which makes that a relatively tough category to make headway into. Um, although Orchard and other companies similar to it are, are making headway, which is great. Um, but when I looked at what Villa is doing, it's solving very much an unsolved problem, which is just a fundamental shortage of housing in America. Like we have more demand for housing than we can serve. And that is just 
incredibly apparent these days with the conflating factors of rising rates, rising home prices, making affordability even worse, which is just making this problem of a fundamental shortage of housing and this massive affordability issue that we've now found ourselves in over the last couple of years, creating a pretty big problem for a lot of the country. And to me, big problems are things that are worth spending time on. And when you look at the housing market, it really is just about supply and demand. And the main way to get through this is to add more supply. And the notion of adding more supply through an innovative business model that does things pretty differently from how homes have historically been built was really appealing to me. Yeah, I I, I totally align to that. I've looked at a lot of the, the different charts that go out, especially when people are saying, oh, it's 2008 all over again. But there are no. so many things. There are totally so different. many things that are so dramatically different. I worked for a home builder from 2006 to 2008. You know, we were doing 50, we were delivering 50 homes a month when I started. And then like the month after I started, I totally jinxed the company and we dropped down to 15 and it <laughs> stayed that way for like a year. It was, it was utterly painful, uh, process to, to witness, but I think you're right. I mean, we've been so far behind the curve of demand for how many years, you know, you guys are just operating in California, but like if you're to put estimates together of even just California, how many housing units behind, do you have a number for what that is? Yeah. I mean, the, the government in California will cite something like two and a half million units in California are needed over some period of time in the future, which is a lot. And nationally that number is even bigger, obviously. So it, it's, it's so big. It's hard to grasp, but yeah. what is, what is California building annually? Like releasing as new units on an annual basis nowhere near what it needs to. And in California, a lot of, well, basically jurisdiction has a certain housing creation requirement that it has to hit. And most of them are struggling to do it, um, which is not good. And then the other thing I'd say too, is it's not just a fundamental mismatch of more demand than supply. The nature mm -hmm. of the supply has shifted pretty dramatically over the last 20 to 25 years. And what really struck me is the shift from builders who back in say 1999, 2000 were building, you know, close to 40% of new homes were like 1800 square feet or less. So we were building a lot of smaller entry level, more affordable homes. And now that's like less than a quarter of new homes are that small. And they're a whole heck of a lot less affordable today than they used to be. And so we're just not building enough smaller entry level homes for new home buyers. And that's a, actually a really big problem because you don't have that supply, which doesn't create the ability for a lot of first-time homeowners to buy a new entry-level home, build wealth, and then trade up to another home over time. And that's a pretty profound issue in the housing market that just goes beyond the just aggregate supply and demand numbers. Like the, the nature of the supply has shifted as big production home builders have focused increasingly on building larger, more expensive homes that are where they make their margins, which makes sense, but it's left a pretty big supply gap in the market at the kind of smaller and lower price point end, um, which is becoming increasingly appealing to consumers given where rates are and where home prices are these days. Um, so that's a pretty, I, I don't know, that that to me was a pretty interesting sort of way to look at this problem as well. Um, really like thinking about it from the first time buyer entry level, smaller home perspective. Yeah, I mean, I know the house that I grew up in, and I'm pretty sure like maybe 1,200 square foot, uh, but that was like five bedrooms split. 
<laughs> so like when you start you start thinking through that it's like man there's there's some small nooks and crannies in there called rooms uh but you know <laughs> hey we, like we had to do it and it was a twin nonetheless so it's like a shared wall so it's like even you know even smaller you're, you're right though that the average home has dramatically increased in size along with our garages and you know interestingly enough alongside yeah. that you would think if homes on average have increased in size but so has the average amount of uh square footage of storage per consumer in the u.s that's true and yeah when you talk about building smaller homes that's got to be music to uh storage reads ears they're just like yeah let's uh let's build smaller homes because <laughs> then they can put up their facilities out in the county and true. <laughs> but there's all kinds of issues there that are, you know, that that's a whole separate uh, day and discussion. Well, let's talk about the um, ADUs. Uh, and I want to talk about specifically prefab because this has been something that yeah. gets thrown around a lot. To some degree, prefab is not new, right? Like this is prefab buildings and homes have been yeah, around we've, for some time now manufacturing homes in factories in america for decades and it's uh it's still a bit of a head scratcher to a lot of people why prefabricated construction is still as small of a share of new home construction as it mm -hmm. is it's about three percent of new homes are coming out through prefab approaches which is way behind basically every other developed economy like if you look at germany it's like 10 percent of homes are prefab japan's 15 the uh, Scandinavian countries are closer to a quarter of homes have some aspect of prefab. So wow. we're just way behind a lot of other developed economies in terms of being able to build homes in factories. And what kind of blows my mind is if, if you look at um, the price of various consumer goods and services, things that can be built in factories. So think of clothing, clothing cars, consumer electronics. If you can mass manufacture something, the price inflates by less or it deflates over time. And things that you can't mass manufacture, so like education, haircuts, uh, you know, healthcare, um, those things tend to inflate by more. And housing is kind mm -hmm. of caught in that bucket of things that inflate relatively rapidly, and it really doesn't need to. If we could increase the percentage of factory production of homes in America, it would start to bend that cost curve of new supply down, which we really need to do as a country in order to produce more homes at a more affordable price point. So mm -hmm. even though there's been several decades of prefab home building in the U.S., it's been a relatively small component of new housing supply. And our contention is that that really has to change here over the coming years um, for, for several reasons. Like one is that the nature of the labor base that builds our homes through traditional construction is aging out, right? Like it's if dwindling. You go back, it's it, dwindling. It nicely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like I think if you go back like 10 years ago, something like a third of builders were struggling to find labor at a reasonable price. Now that's like north of 85% of builders are struggling to find labor. Something like 40% wow. of our skilled construction trades are going to retire over the next decade. And there aren't enough new skilled tradespeople coming in to fill the seats of those people who are retiring. And that's mm -hmm. a problem. And that's a problem that's not going to change anytime soon. And the implication of that is the labor availability to build homes is not going to be there. And the labor that is there is going to be really freaking expensive, which is going to create cost pressures on building new homes over the next decade or two. And, and increasingly, I also think that those, those aggregate statistics kind of obfuscate another really important trend, which is for folks that are skilled construction tradespeople, 
they will increasingly gravitate towards larger commercial projects, which is where they can make more money, which is going to leave the labor market for smaller scale entry-level home production even more undersupplied, further exacerbating that problem for traditional stick-built construction. So mm-hmm. from our perspective, like prefab is really the only way forward to meet the housing needs, especially at an affordable price point throughout the country. What are some of the reasons why, though? Like, why haven't we? Is it, is it distribution? Is it the actual manufacturing? My opinion, and this is the outsider, right? This is the uneducated here talking, is that it has something to do with there's a stigma around it. And that's on the local governmental as well as financial or the financing piece of the home. There's a stigma, but I think a lot of that stigma stems from the root cause that like it really comes down to many decades of post-World War II public policy that has favored traditional site-built construction over prefab. And Hmm. you can see this in, it's manifest in lots of different local, state, and federal laws that preference traditional construction over prefabricated construction. And the motivation for that, um, whether it's said out loud or not, in many ways was to create jobs for people, um, which made a lot of sense through the the mid to late 20th century when we had an abundant workforce that we wanted to put to work in, you know, really good jobs that paid really well. And that makes a ton of sense when you've got that workforce available, but we don't today. And so a lot of those policies that are very favorable for traditional stick building and somewhat prohibitive to prefab need to start changing. And we're starting to see that really change in a lot of places. So that's kind Mm -hmm. of the underlying root cause. And the stigma point that you're pointing to, I think, kind of stems from that and, and several really several decades of public policy advocacy and consumer marketing and other advocacy that has really created that stigma around the category. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, like the distribution for manufactured homes has not been very good. That's something that we're focused on changing um, from our company's perspective. And a lot of the physical product has been relatively slow to innovate to the types of designs and fixture and finish preferences that a lot of folks have in their homes. And so there's also kind of a physical product cycle that kind of needs to catch up to what people actually want to build and live in, um, which is something that we're working to drive quite a bit with with our factory partners here at Villa. I want to get into the design piece, and, and I'm also going to follow up with that, but I'm going to, if we can first touch sure. on the cost efficiency piece, uh, obviously, you know, that's something that you're aware of and you're, you're sensitive to that, hey, th- there's an overall problem here. We've got to be able to find ways to drive down the cost. But of course, you guys have to find a way to make money. How are you balancing those two? And what are you doing to get give the company its you know, competitive advantage to be able to be far more competitive on price? Yeah, well, it comes down to a few things. Um, so one is the cost advantages of building a home in a factory environment are pretty significant. Um, you've got labor savings that are about 25% less if you're building in a factory versus building on site. And you've got a lot of other efficiencies from things like precision cutting, less material waste. There's a, there's a lot of things that contribute to having a much lower marginal cost of production. Um, and if you look at national statistics, it's uh, for building a manufactured home, you're looking at about $72 a square foot or so nationally compared right. to about $144 for a traditional site-built home per square foot. And that's mm-hmm. just the cost mm-hmm. of the structure, X land and X everything else. So it's like sure. half as much to build a manufactured home. And then modular, which is a little bit different, is more like $70 to $120 a square foot. So still quite a bit cheaper. 
Um, so not only do you have that cost advantage of being able to have the efficiencies of mass production from building in a factory with less labor input and also a lower skilled labor input, which is cheaper, you also have the advantages of speed, um, which matters a lot in an environment where interest rates are now, you know, not as low as they used to be. Um, time oh. matters a lot. So being able to get mm. onto a job site, have the home built and either rent ready or occupancy ready for the owner and doing that as quickly as possible is a pretty big advantage as well because time is money and that time is a heck of a lot more expensive when you're paying you know a much higher interest rate on your loan while you're going through a construction process so you're saving money not only through the marginal cost of actually producing the home you're also saving money through the um, the speed advantages of, of going with prefab which is pretty meaningful for a lot of folks today Let's kind of jump into the, you talked about design. What are some of the things that they're looking for when they want to personalize the the home and types of materials uh, that they're, they're looking to be included, incorporated? And from my own perspective and um, selfish inquiry here, if you will, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated by ADUs in general, but like, do people put just as fine a finishing in the ADU or do they really gravitate towards everything that's base level because it's probably not their primary for their use it really depends on who is building it and why they're building it and so to, mm. to put a bit of perspective around that um with our adu product everything we build is a detached new structure that's typically going adjacent to a primary single family home residence or in many cases now uh, uh, beside like an apartment building um and we build ADUs that can be as small as about 440 square feet and as big as 1,200 square feet with about 20 different floor plan configurations and home options in between the two of them. So mm -hmm. we've got the widest selection, we believe, on the market right now in terms of prefab detached ADUs. And folks that are building them are usually, in, in a very, very broad sense, building it for either the purposes of occupying it themselves for a variety of different reasons, which could be having you know, family live on site for multi-generational living. It could be having additional space outside of their primary residence for a work from home environment. Um, it could be a, a space to, you know, have a homeschool environment. There's a lot of different reasons that people build these for their own personal use. And mm -hmm. then on the other side, you've got a lot of people that are building them for income generating reasons where they're looking to either do short-term rentals for Airbnb or long-term rentals to generate recurring yield out of the ADU. And the underlying motivation for why you're building the ADU largely feeds into really how much money you're willing to spend on it, which then translates into the fixture and finish level that folks are willing to put into it. And so for folks that are building it for their own use, we find that they tend to have a propensity to choose higher end finishes. They put more upgrades into the unit and they want a space that you know is, is really, really nice to be in. And for folks that are doing it for more of an income generation motivation, they may be a bit more sensitive to cost because they're ultimately trying to solve for a compelling yield on cost for that asset that they're building. And they may be a bit um, more likely to go towards more of the base specs in a unit to be able to save money. And they're still getting a very quiet, high quality home at the end of the day, but the mm -hmm the choices that they're making to, you know, not upgrade to granite countertops or maybe not upgrade the floors. Like there, there are choices like that, that you can make that really do have an impact on the fully loaded cost of the unit, but it really comes down to like why you're building it and who's sure. ultimately going to be occupying the unit. 
it would seem to me that there may also be some correlation uh, with people who are adding ADUs to have uh, a consciousness towards energy efficiency and overall impact. Do you find that to be something that you're hearing from consumers and how much is that part of the design process or even motivations as to why they're choosing to work with Villa? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, for some folks, it's very important. For others, it's less important. Again, every every consumer has their own motivations for building it, but all of our homes are they're solar ready, they're well insulated, they're typically very energy efficient. We're oftentimes encouraging folks to like not put gas into their unit now to go fully electric. Um, you know, there's there's a bunch of little things that we're doing to drive the sustainability of the finished box. And then also, when you look at the, the nature of how the home is built in the factory, the actual construction process is more sustainable than traditional construction as well, because you've got you know, better, better energy efficiency. You don't have the same carbon footprint of a bunch of people driving around and trucking materials around and driving labor around. You've got less material waste because you've got precision cutting in a factory. Um, you know, this is less about environmental sustainability, but it's also arguably safer for the workers who are working in a factory in a controlled environment under a roof, rather than being out in the open elements, climbing around on rafters with a pneumatic nail gun. So there's a lot of benefits to building a home in a factory setting that um, have both sustainability benefits as well as I think just kind of it's a it's just better in a lot of ways at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it would seem like that. I, I want to shift a little bit and kind of talk a little more about growth here. You know, yeah. there are some growing a digital or tech company you know, has its own challenges, but, you know, usually warehousing and shipping logistics and that sort of thing doesn't come into play. For you guys, however, <laughs> like that's a, that's a whole nother beast. That's a whole nother set of operations and processes. Cool. I want to shift and talk a little bit about some of the growth challenges. You know, building a tech company is one thing, you know, scaling is difficult, finding your customers, but you don't normally have to work, you know, worry about building a warehouse and shipping out from a warehouse and trucking and, you know, that sort of thing. You guys are literally building, you know, you have a large product. You have to actually maintain, like get the logistics down to ship it, to get it out there. Can, can you talk about some of those challenges and how you're, you're navigating those challenges so that you can be the, the largest supplier and be a fast growing company? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. The business that we operate in is complicated and it involves both technology and a relatively complicated physical supply chain. And what we do to be able to make that scalable is to focus on doing the things that we should be doing and outsourcing and simply orchestrating the things that we shouldn't be doing. And for us, we we really focus on owning the parts of the value chain and owning the relationship with the end client and outsourcing a lot of the more asset intensive or labor intensive parts of the value chain, which allows us to remain very asset light, low fixed cost, high return on capital, and therefore a very scalable business model. So some examples of that. One, we don't own and operate our own factories. Rather, we layer on top of a variety of different factories and use our internal production algorithm to allocate certain units of demand to the right factory based on what's being built, where it's being built, which factory can build it at the lowest price, which factory has the shortest backlog and can build it the most quickly. So we outsource the factory production to a variety of partners. Now they're building our homes with our designs and our specs, but um, ultimately 
being flexible with our supply chain allows us to be very scalable. Second, on the trade labor front, so for things like logistics companies doing the shipping, the cranes to install the homes, all the installation labor to pour foundations and run utilities and stitch and seam the homes, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this. And we, while we are a general contractor and we perform a lot of this work under our license, we're subbing out a lot of that work to different trades to be able to do it on a as-needed basis, which allows us to remain, again, very, very flexible. And it lets us focus on what we're good at and lets others focus on the things that they're good at. And what we're good at and the things that we self-perform are everything from acquiring the client through our marketing and, and business development efforts, designing the homes, orchestrating the ordering of the homes with the factories, we perform permitting and entitlement in-house, which is a really important capability for us because you learn a lot by permitting across hundreds of different jurisdictions over time. And that data advantage of knowing what it takes to get a permit through in different places is really valuable. Mm -hmm. So we self-perform that. Um, we build a lot of our technology in-house, but we use a lot of third-party software as well where we don't need to build things, which lets us be lean and fast to get to the commercial outcomes we care about. And we try and make everything really easy for the client at the end of the day. But from a scalability perspective, like we want to own and do the things that we're good at and let others do the things that they're good at and kind of bifurcate the supply chain in a way that we're not doing all the, you know, the warehousing and the shipping and the construction of the home because um, other people are really good at that. And they can be our suppliers rather than necessarily being within the four walls of our business. And being an early stage venture back company, we, we simply don't have the capital to be able to go out and vertically integrate into those parts of the value chain at this point. So, um, you know, it's it, it allows us to grow a heck of a lot faster if we're not burdened with the fixed cost of factories or a high labor base. And we can just tap into it when it's essentially matched to revenue, which lets us scale really, really well with a high return on capital. That makes a ton of sense. And I mean, that that's what goes in my head, you know, when you talked about the factories and, and how you guys are navigating that. And I'm like, how are you building the fact? I mean, you, cause then you have to have factory managers and then, then it's the supply of goods coming in and out. So you have someone doing procurement and then you have to actually have builders and then you have to have like shipping logistics. Court. I'm just like, my head was spinning of like, as a startup, how does you like, how does anyone even build all those separate individual companies that would have to coexist and operate in unison. And you've really kind of looked at like, Hey, can we be the core, the brain of the operations? Who's already doing a lot of those pieces. Let's make that the movement smarter. You talked about like which factory to send an order to versus just, you know, cramming up the assembly line and then being back ordered several weeks on something. I, I, I have to ask though, then with knowing that, are you a tech company are you a construction company? How do you, what do you summarize it as? We're somewhere in between. Like at the end of the day, we do construction, but we use technology all over the place to make the process of doing construction as fast and easy and cost-effective as possible. And mm -hmm. so in many ways, you could describe our business as being very similar to like a marketplace and a tech company. And on the other hand, you could say, well, we're a licensed general contractor, so we're a construction company. The reality is we're kind of both. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's actually okay with me. Um, in many ways, the financial profile of our business looks a lot more like a software company than a construction company. Um, the way that we'll scale our financial profile looks a lot more like a software company than a construction company, but we're doing construction activities. And 
that's really where the technology benefit in our business comes into play is having, like you said, that sort of central brain that can orchestrate the activities of all these parties, whether they're in-house or third parties, and mm -hmm. have them all well aligned with the right schedule, the right logistics, the right sequencing of activities, and being able to do all of that within a really, really tightly managed system such that we get a good outcome for our end customer at the end of the day. And that's hard. Um, and that's really hard to do without technology. Like you've got to have technology to be able to do this at all. And, and frankly, you have to have technology to make it scale. Like there's just no way to scale a business like this without having a relatively sophisticated tech backbone that can do all that stuff. So um, for us, technology has been a core part of the business's DNA since day one. And it's an area that we've invested a lot in, both in terms of the internal operations to orchestrate all this stuff, but also in terms of building uh, client-facing features. Um, like we've got, I think we were the first group in the category to put a design studio online that looks a lot like um, how you'd buy a car online. So you can come on to mm -hmm. villahomes.com and configure your ADU and you can choose your roof pitch, your floor plan, your counter type, the colors, like all these different features, you can select and see the pricing in real time on our website, just mm -hmm. like how you'd be configuring a, a new car from a car dealer, um, which is really, really cool and something that doesn't really exist in home building. And so that technology gives us the ability to not only have like a really great, easy, intuitive way to talk to our customers and have them configure and get exactly what they want. But then all the data that that tool is harvesting is then fed into our systems to be able to make sure that we're ordering the right home with the right configurations and actually building the right thing at the end of the day. So it all kind of yeah. ties together and being that sort of central brain. And a lot of it really is about data, data process systems and just or being organized is really the core of what our technology does. Um, but it's it's uh, it's really important. So I wouldn't say we're a pure play tech company, but we're, we're not that far off of one at the end of the day. I love it. You had briefly mentioned um, having data on the permitting process as, you know, being advantageous to your business, I'm, or at least helping you be able to build and deliver units. Do you look at the the current uh, environment where permitting and and local rules on how you build, setback requirements, density requirements? Do you look at that as a headwind to your business growth, or Given your ability to collect data and put things together and operate in a little smarter fashion, do you see that as a competitive advantage? The latter. We definitely see it as a competitive advantage. Um, and every authority having jurisdiction over permits has different nuances in terms of all, all the things you're talking about. You know, setback requirements, requiring fire sprinklers, like there's all kinds of things that are different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And mm -hmm. there's not like a central place that you can go and just look that up. A lot of it you have to actually figure out by engaging with that jurisdiction and actually putting permits through it to have experience on how they're actually going to behave and what they're going to approve and why. And mm -hmm. that data, which we now have by working in over 200 different jurisdictions throughout California gives us a really robust database to understand what we're getting into when we start doing a new home project. And the value of that is extremely profound. Not only can we be more thoughtful upfront with our client around setting cost expectations, 
Um, but we understand how to get the permits through in a fast and reliable manner because you don't have to go through and iterate with round after round of comments. Sometimes that does happen, absolutely. And every jurisdiction is different and every project is different. But that pattern recognition and repeatability that you have by building data around this is really powerful. Mm. I, I can only imagine. Uh, I don't think that's something I want to get into. I once looked through the process of building an ADU for a rental property we have back in Washington. We were going to convert the, uh, we have a large shop and we were going to convert that into an apartment when we were thinking about moving back there. And I, and I went through and I tried doing all the research and I built it out like I would any other project. I opened my air table and it just started making all the, like all the things I had to do just to build. It wasn't even like, it wasn't the designs. It wasn't like the specifics of the designs. It wasn't like which cabinets and installation order of things. It was, it was honestly overwhelming. Even after breaking it down, I, I can only imagine the complexity in trying to do that in a, in a larger manner. Um, and by the way, that's part of our value add to the client at the end of the day is a lot of clients mm. are overwhelmed about the process of, okay, I know I want to build an ADU, but like, where do I even begin? And it's really a daunting thing when you're starting from scratch and you might have a vision yeah. of what you want to build and why you want to build it, but actually going through and figuring out, well, you know, who's going to build it for me? Who's going to design it? Um, it, it's it's pretty daunting. Uh, and a lot of what we do is make that process simple, easy, intuitive for the client to understand what they should build, what they can build, to navigate the permitting process, to navigate the design process, to be able to choose all the things that matter to them in the home. And we also, another benefit of our business too, is we have model homes. So you can go out and see a villa home in person and understand what you're really going to be getting at the end of the day, which is really different than what you'd get by working with a local general contractor who may not have a sample project of exactly what you're going to get. So, you know, we've got an ability to make this really easy for the client and we handle a lot of that hard work using our technology and systems and team to be able to do that in a repeatable, scalable way that really takes that stress off the customer, which is so valuable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, undoubtedly, in a startup, uh, you, there's lessons that are learned along the way, presumptions of how something could go or should go or will go, and then you find out that maybe it's not the case. Are there any lessons you can share about either some experiments or ideas you had that turned out to, to not be what you thought they were going to be? Yeah, you're right. There's lots of examples of that in companies like this. I think one is um, the way Villa got started was focused on doing direct-to-consumer backyard home ADUs. So, you know, you, you inherently have one customer with one backyard and that's not a bad, mm -hmm. that's not a bad business. Um, and we're helping put housing where it needs to be. And that's, that's really good, but that's a hard business to scale for a lot of different reasons. And so one of the hypotheses that we had earlier this year was we need to find a way to be able to add housing through ADUs in other category or other demand channels. And we leaned really hard into working with institutional clients who have low rise or garden style multifamily buildings where they have extra land or parking. And under the laws in California right now, they can add ADUs. It's technically two ADUs per tax parcel for a multifamily building. And we found that to be a really interesting segment for us where now we're probably, I, th I think we're by far the leading player in putting ADUs alongside apartment buildings in California. 
And that's become a very significant part of our sales this year. And that was a hypothesis that we sort of, we had, we tested it, we found really good signal and we leaned into it and we've scaled it up a whole lot. And we put some really great homes in the ground for those types of clients that have worked really, really, really well. Um, and frankly, that the success in that channel is something that I think surprised all of us to the positive, which is really good. Um, and we've also found that taking our capabilities as a other ways to deploy that creatively has been a place where we found some interesting applications and some places where it doesn't work. But ADUs are they're a great business, but it's a it's a tough business in many ways to scale beyond California because California has statewide ADU regulation that makes it relatively favorable to do ADUs in California. Not yet has any other state passed a statewide set of regulations that would be quite as accommodating as California. It's much more local and much more difficult. So we've yeah. started to toe into doing primary home building using prefab. And that's something that we turned on this summer. We've actually built and delivered our first handful of spec built single family homes in a market that's really well suited to our wow. type of product. So we're going beyond ADUs and using the same supply chain, the same customer acquisition capability our ability to build a prefab ADU and build a prefab single family home. And that has been um, a really interesting vertical for us to continue to scale into. And again, it's one of these areas where we focused on like, what are we good at? What can we do really well? And let's lean into that. And that started to show some, some really encouraging signal in, in our business. Um, and it gives us a path to scaling beyond California to go into markets where um, impactful for our ability to achieve our mission, which is fundamentally about being the easiest, fastest, and most cost-efficient way to build homes, whether it's an ADU or not. Like we just want to put more you know, homes in the ground for people to live in at an affordable price point. And if we can do that with primary homes in other states with prefab, great. And if we can keep doing the ADU business in California, which we're going to keep doing alongside that, great. Um, so it's, you know, kind of just, again, it's finding the signal for the things that work and leaning into it and cutting off the things that we try that don't work <laughs> pretty quickly. All right. We're going to move on to uh, the bottom of the show to a segment I like to call for the future for the future is when I get to ask each guest who comes on the show to give me their best predictions based on the following four questions. Sean, are you ready to play? Let's do it. All right. Number one here. What does Villa look like one year from now? One year from now, we're going to be in two or three states building primary homes, building ADUs still in California, and growing really rapidly with an even more diverse set of demand drivers and an even more diverse supply chain. Very cool. Number two here, get out the crystal ball. How many ADUs will be added per year, so the annual rate of ADUs being added across the state of California by the end of 2025? It's a great question. I think last year in 2022, about 23,000 permits were pulled. And so you, you need to think about the question in terms of how many permits are being pulled versus how many units are actually being installed. And the there's a lag between the two, and not every permit mm. that gets pulled turns into a unit that's built, uh, which is kind of important. But I would say the if you just look at the growth rate of what we've seen since the ADU regulation started changing, which really started happening in 2016, the number of ADU permits pulled in 2015 before the the, the regulatory barriers really were starting to be torn down by the state government, mm -hmm. there were about 1,100 permits pulled. 
Um, wow. And that last year was 24,000. So that's like 22x growth or whatever in eight years. So that's a pretty good growth rate. Um, I think that growth rate will be somewhat muted in the next couple of years, given high interest rates being a bit of a, a headwind to especially yeah. consumers who want to build them. I think institutional clients will continue to build them because it's one of the best places they can put capital to work. So, you know, I, in 2025, I could see us being somewhere between 30 to 40,000 ADU permits being pulled. And then, you know, you've probably got about two thirds of that that's pulling through to actual construction. So let's say somewhere in the low 20,000s of, of ADUs being built. That would be kind of my guess. But of course, there's a lot that goes into that. Who knows where we are from a rate perspective in 2025 right now. Um, and that's sort of a big a big driver for how people are looking at it and also where apartment rent growth goes because mm-hmm. well, apartment rent growth and single family home rent growth kind of determine some of the appetite for folks to want to build these for rental reasons. So could be higher, could be lower, but I think the upward uh, trend of ADU construction is just going to continue for the foreseeable future, frankly, because like- It sounds like a such a big situation. number- it yeah. sounds like a big number, but for the overall housing need, uh, it's just a small step forward. But you know, it's one thing at a time for sure. Yeah. Uh, Although, all right, like three one here. in seven homes in 2022 is an ADU built in California, so it's not that wow. small. Yeah. Well, you put it like that. All right, number three here on for the future. What's one industry trend you think will continue, but you wish would go away? High interest rates. True. True. No one's arguing there with you on that one. All right. Last one on For the Future. What's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of tech advances? It's a very big question. I think from the lens of Villa, um, we're going to see a continued increase in the proportion of housing that's built off-site over the next couple decades. And that's for all the reasons that I mentioned earlier around labor shortages and the realities of just the the structural inefficiencies of traditional site-built construction. And eventually, we're going to have to start doing more infill building in this country um, rather than taking out just massive tracts of of farmland and building out new subdivisions or the so-called missing middle of housing in places that are closer to the urban cores where people really want to live and work. And in order for that type of housing to be added efficiently and scalably, that's going to have to be done with some forms of offsite construction, whether that's full prefab, whether that's some kind of a panelized approach, whether it's 3D printing, which I think is still relatively nascent and has its own aesthetic uh, characteristics that some people like and don't like. The reality is the way that we build homes in America is going to have to evolve and become a model that is more of a mass production, less labor intensive, and more scalable, more cost-efficient way of doing things. And technology is going to be all over the ability to scale that and make it work, especially for smaller scale building for infill applications, which I think has to be done in this country over the next couple of decades. So that would be my guess as we see more offsite construction or prefab construction, more of that being done in urban kind of, or you know suburban infill applications and we're going to see that be, I think, a really big trend over the next couple, you know, hopefully a couple decades, but certainly in the near term. All right. Sean, we're going to jump to the final segment here. I've got three remaining questions about you so our listeners get to know you just a bit better. And I know you have a good answer for the first one. Number one, what are you reading? Um, well, right now, I just, I'm, I'm actually in between books. I just finished a book called Cattle Kingdom, which was 
the story of the cattle boom and bust of the mid 1880s in the American West. Fantastic read. Really enjoyed it. Wow. It is actually it kind of blew my mind. I didn't realize that the meatpacking industry was like 25% of US GDP and was the biggest industry in the country before automakers came up in the early 20th century. It was like incredibly impactful and the the whole story of how like the cattle ranching you know, op- open range cattle ranching kind of boomed and, and busted is, is really, really interesting. It's a good book. You got my attention. I've got cattle. Uh, if I just go two blocks over <laughs> behind us walking through the hills in the summertime, it's great. Cause you walk outside and you hear cows moving and I can see them up on the hills. It's kind of fun. <laughs> Number two here. Who are you learning from? Lots of people. Um, I think these days I'm actually learning as much from, are like the people within Villa and our clients as I am from anyone else. Um, Like we try to be really attentive to the voice of the customer in our business. And we actually launched a a consumer survey recently to get a bunch of data from um, folks that are looking either have ADUs or looking to get ADUs and just listening to what people want to build and learning from that consumer signal and also what our team is hearing and seeing on the front lines talking to clients is really starting to drive some of the decisions that we're making internally. So we're hearing really clearly in the market that you know folks need a lower cost ADU product. Um, with mm-hmm. rates where they are and home prices where they are, cost matters a lot. So we're looking at you know how can we find an even more affordable product line to roll out, for example. We've heard a lot of demand from consumers who are looking for an accessible unit um, for folks that are, you know, aging in place. Um, and there, there's a lot of things like that that we're just hearing from customers and learning from and adopting that and how we go to market in our business. And I, I think that's frankly some of the most valuable learning you can get is just hearing what the customer really wants at the end of the day. Talking to your customers, a theme for a few interviews back when we had Rhino on the show. And I think that's a underappreciated uh, talent and expertise that companies can have or maybe lack. Uh, all right. Last one here. What inspires you? Having an impact at the, at the end of the day, that's something that really motivates me. And um, looking at how other people have built great businesses that have changed categories and changed people's lives for the better is really inspiring and motivating to me. And I think here at Villa, we've got a chance to build something that's really different and special in terms of how housing is bought and built in America. And for all the reasons that we've talked about over the last hour or so, um, you know, it's a business that needs to be built in many ways. And so the inspiration of seeing other people build other companies and other categories that have really redefined how an entire category is thought about from the consumer's perspective, the capital market's perspective, and they've solved a really important human need, I find that to be really inspiring. And when I look at many tech businesses that are out there that are, you know, optimizing ad sales or building some social media thing that doesn't really solve a human problem, I don't find those inspiring. Although the capital markets often loves those businesses and those people do really well and like, great power to them, but they're not solving a fundamental human problem. And to me, shelter is like literally, you know, pretty high up there on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so focusing on things that can solve Exactly. Like it's pretty important, right? So focusing on things that really impact people's lives and, you know, housing availability and affordability is one of the biggest expenses in people's lives. And if we can take a small dent out of that at Villa, like to me, that's just really, really cool. So, um, 
I, I, I don't know. I find what we're doing to be really inspiring and the vision that we have is inspiring to me and seeing how people have done that in other categories is kind of, you know, I, I would love to be able to do that here at Villa over time with our team. Sean, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate you coming on the show, breaking everything down. Talk to us about ADUs, new ways of building homes, some of the challenges, but also what you guys are doing to transform that segment of the industry. Before we close out the show, uh, for people who want to connect with you or they want to learn more about Villa, where do they go and how do they do that? Yeah, well, first of all, th- thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Um, our website is villahomes.com. So you can find us online and there's a whole lot of fun things to do on our website. You can put an ADU virtually in your backyard. You can design it online. You can pick from all of our different SKUs and see the, the gallery of all the different projects we've done. So it's a pretty fun experience. Go check it out, villahomes.com. Awesome. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'll be checking that out myself. I'm, I'm a little curious. Uh, and once we hang up, I'll probably try and convince you to, to bring the business to South Dakota as one of your next states to expand to. But <laughs> otherwise, not on the roadmap you know. yet, but it might maybe someday we'll get there. <laughs> All righty. Well, we'll catch you later. All right. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for listening to TechNest, the PropTech Podcast. Find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode on technest.io. You can get future episodes delivered to your ears directly by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcast apps. Follow TechNest on social media to stay up to speed on new developments, resources, and announcements in PropTech. Your support is greatly appreciated. There's two ways you can directly support this podcast. Share episodes you find interesting and then leave a review of the show in the App Store. From Nate and the TechNest team, thanks for listening.